Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Hoey. Hoey is the Labour MP for Vauxhall and this June will mark 30 years in that role. She has served as the Minister for Sport in the Blair Government and in 2016 campaigned for leave in the EU referendum. Hoey is a libertarian Eurosceptic who has frequently strayed from the party line. Since the referendum, she has been a vocal proponent of leaving the EU, suggesting Jeremy Corbyn should trust his instincts to back a no-deal Brexit, and defying the Labour whip in a crunch vote on a potential customs union. She suffered a vote of no confidence for her constituency Labour Party last year over her Brexit stance, but in trademark style brushed it off, insisting at the time, after 29 years as an MP, I am quite relaxed about the vote, and it won't influence in any way how I vote in the future. So, Kate, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, to begin on this podcast, we'd like to go back to what you were doing before you were in your current career. And looking at your childhood, you grew up in Northern Ireland on a small farm in County Antrim. What was your childhood like? Oh, I had a very idyllic childhood looking back on it. Small farm, uh, not much money, wonderful parents, very much wanted to make sure that my sister and myself and then my brother had a good education, played a lot, always getting up trees and falling and having a permanent cut on my knee from falling. And generally, a lovely time, went to grammar school in Belfast, which was a great, uh, you know, my parents were so thrilled when we got into grammar school and very much grew up with my parents ex- realising that, you know, we we didn't have money, as I said, a lot of money. We weren't walking around shoeless or anything like that, but they did sacrifice a huge amount. And, you know, all my, my love of you know, music or books and everything came from, from them, really. They were parents who had not had any mainstream education, but wanted us to do as well as we could. And my mother just died two years ago at 96, so... That was a great, great blow to me. My father died about 10 years earlier. And I presume they're very proud parents. Oh, but very proud. And, and my father was particularly interested in politics. He was, a, in those days, there was a Northern Ireland Labour Party. He would have been a Labour supporter. And my mother also was always interested in politics, but were never involved in what you would call these days sectarian politics. I mean, I grew up in a, in a very pro-union country area, but... We were always taught to, you know, admire people from different backgrounds, different, and they were quite a. We were quite a Christian family. I mean, I went to Sunday school every Sunday afternoon, as well as going to church in the morning, and it was, um, looking back, absolutely privileged, really, to have had the kind of support that my parents gave me right through my life. And before we get on to your decision to become a Labour politician. I was just going to touch on briefly, you were also the Northern Ireland high jump um, champion, 1966. Yes. Well, um, I was a great sporty. I was very sporty. It was just assumed when I was at school, my sister went on to Queen's and you know, master's degree and all of that. I was always assumed that I would go to PE college because I was very, very good at sport. And I was part of the Northern Ireland athletics team. And I competed against Mary Peters in those days when, and uh, one year she was injured and I won the high jump. So it's not really 
It's embarrassing, actually. People sometimes mention it when you're at school or something and they read out something about you and, you know, the children look at you as if you're some kind of... I say, yes, it was ancient history. So you're never tempted to try and be a professional athlete? Oh, I would have liked to be, but I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, um, I wasn't good enough. And you had to work very, very hard. I had to walk sort of two miles, get a bus to Bellamina, which was quite, you know, another half, half hour on a bus, getting back late at night. You really had to be dedicated in those days. And we were jumping into an old sand pit, which was actually, I'm amazed that I'm still walking given the, the falls I had. And what were the politics in Northern Ireland like when you were growing up? Well, there was a Northern Ireland Labour Party, but it never really got accepted by the mainland Labour Party, similar to what's there today, actually. But of course, there were Labour MPs. Then when I was a student at the Ulster College of Physical Education, it was very much just pre-Troubles, just on the edge of the Troubles starting. A lot of debates at Queen's University. We used to hitchhike into Belfast and take part in the debates with some great, great speakers. And I got involved with, you know, the People's Democracy Movement, Civil Rights Movement. It was very much for me about equal rights and people being treated properly. Unfortunately, then what happened, of course, and I moved to London and took an economics degree and taught through my first two years doing my studying. I taught PE in East London. But then at that time, the the whole civil rights movement got kind of taken over by, you know, the IRA and Irish republicanism and that whole attitude you either... I mean, I found it quite difficult in London when I came first because there was this idea that... If you came from Northern Ireland and were pro-union, you must be some kind of sectarian person. And uh, I mean, I found that right through my involvement, even in early involvement in the Labour Party. And you were a member before you joined Labour of the International Marxist Group. And um, (laughs) what drew you to that group? Oh, well, that was when I was a student in London and got involved in, in, in student politics Yeah, I mean, it was a choice between the IMG and the International Socialists. And I think uh, the IMG had Tariq Ali, and I think I was probably more attracted to him than I was to some of the IS people. But, you know, I I was young. I went through a very radical phase. And I think that that has done me no harm because I now can spot spot Trotskyites at a at a distance and it's funny you mentioned looks because I do remember from my university experience that there was a general view that the if you're going to be young and political the cooler and probably more attractive people were on the left yes whereas probably the young Tory associations aren't quite there yes I think I think that's right and of course it was a time of student politics you know the sort of sit-ins there was always a sit-in going on at some art college or other and all of that was quite exciting and you know I always people said to me why why have you gone to England and I always said well I've gone gone to the capital city of my country which was London so yes but I I, I you know I expect young people to be experimenting and and trying different kinds of things and and that that at the time was for me very important I also went to Cuba in 1968 which was a great you know revolutionary place then uh, we went to plant coffee in solidarity with the Cuban revolution you know I look back now on that and think that you know, when I did that, people probably would have thought I was some kind of mad extremist now, but people change. One of the policies of the International no, Marxist Group, just to touch on it briefly, was a united Ireland. Mm. Was that something you ever really, you mentioned your unionist um, feelings? No, I, I understood why people wanted that. And I kind of saw the sort of romanticised idea of a united Ireland. And you look back on some of the, the history and people who'd fought for it were from a you know, a Protestant background in the old days. And But I, I think as I got older, I just 
realised very much that I felt very British. I felt the United Kingdom was a, something that I wanted to support. And I got very angry in a way that people who came from that pro-union background were, as I said, pointed as as always being sectarian and extremist. And, the, you know, I, I got very annoyed that the Labour Party had the policy of supporting a united Ireland up until probably the thing that I most supported Tony Blair for doing was actually when he came in as leader, he changed that policy and said the right of Northern Ireland people to stay British would be part of our policy until they voted otherwise. And I think that made a huge difference in how people related to Northern Ireland. But there's always been people who've just got the idea that if you're from Northern Ireland, I don't think people really understand it. And we're seeing that today with the discussions over the border and everything. I don't think people in England really understand Northern Ireland in a way that they should. And then at what point did you decide you wanted to be an MP? You mentioned that you studied mm. economics and yes. you also trained to be a PE teacher. Well, I, I joined the Labour Party then around about 1978 and, you know, went along. I think my first conference was a delegate in 1979 and I met lots of MPs and I had thought up until then that MPs were must be very clever must be very you know how could you possibly be a member of parliament it was such a you know an important job and then I met quite a lot of Labour MPs and I discovered that most of them actually weren't the kind of you know I weren't what I'd thought I thought well if I can see all these men mainly men they were maybe I, I could do this and it, it kind of happened I became the um I was a councillor, first of all, and then I became the GLA candidate, the candidate for the London. Funny enough, Jeremy Corbyn was my agent when I was selected in Hornsey to be the candidate for the GLC elections in 1980. Was he supportive? 80, 81. And then... Was he he a supportive agent? He was a very supportive agent. He was a very hard-working agent. I have to say anybody who had Jeremy Corbyn as as their campaign manager agent knows what it was like to work. And it was probably a very good lesson for me later on that, you know, you don't get elected by sort of sitting back and and smiling at people. So then I went for Dulwich and I got selected to fight the Dulwich election in 1983. And so I had to go to Jeremy and say, I'm sorry, Jeremy, but I, you know, I'd like to do this. So I'm going to have to pull out of being the, the GLC candidate. And I, I think he was very unhappy at the time because I think I was quite a good candidate. But I did that. And I, then I fought Dulwich in 1983 very nice Conservative Member of Parliament, Gerald Bowden, who was re-elected but with a reduced majority. And then I fought again in 1987 and lost after three recounts by 180 votes, which was a great a great uh, vote, but very disappointing. You know, I think realistically, deep down, you know that you're not going to overturn 180 votes. But it went down. My agent was wonderful. He's now dead. Peter Cather, he, he just went after every vote. And I think we got it down from 260 to 180, you know. But it was pretty... And it's so sad for your supporters. I mean, I, there was loads of tears. And it was very traumatic at the time losing by that amount because we'd done quite well there were a few other victories around and you know I was awfully disappointed at the time and then you managed to get your route into parliament through the Vauxhall yes I got rung up by Charles Clark and I said to me and this was 1989 that just to let me know that Stuart Holland was standing down and it was going to be announced and that there would be a by-election and we'd lost three by-elections in a row Labour we'd done extremely badly in Greenwich we'd lost 
I think Fulham. And I think Labour were determined under Neil Kinnock then that this was going to be a by-election they'd win. So what happened was we, I put my name forward, a number of other people did. The local party was very much in the hands of a very hard left constituency and they when we went up in the shortlist, they didn't want the shortlist. They wanted a particular person on the shortlist, uh, yeah. who's now in the House of Lords, actually. Martha Osmore. Martha Osmore. And they refused to accept the shortlist. And instead of, they thought they would be given more time. Instead of that, um, the national executive took us all up to the House of Commons. And we were all interviewed by a, a panel of Roy Jenkins, um, Joyce Gould, who was the, the general secretary at the time, Joan Lester, I can't remember who all was it, Tom Sawyer, I think. And I, I was selected and I remember being taken out onto the green at midnight by Peter Mandelson, who was then the party public relations, whatever you call it in those days. And I'm being interviewed, you know, by one of the morning programmes about it and thinking, what am I doing here? So anyway, that was that. And then we had a very tough by-election. And because a couple of black candidates stood and, and I, I, you know, there was this idea that, that it should have been a black candidate. And I was very concerned in the first week or so. You thought, oh, dear, you'd go and knock on people's doors and think, are you going to be shouted at? And then after about a week or so, I realised that this was not people really wanted to have uh, a Labour MP. But also they wanted a Labour MP who was saying, we're going to stand up to the council, which was a pretty awful council. And people, you know, hadn't had their housing repairs. It was just nothing. It was a dreadful council. There's no doubt about it. Very, very politically on the hard left and not worrying about people's lives. And so I stood on the manifesto that whatever happened, I would stand up, even if it was a Labour council. And of course, I've continued to do that to today. And then what was, I imagine when you won that by-election, obviously, big triumph and you're in Parliament. But did you find that the reaction from your local party was at all lukewarm, or did you feel that, in the end, they were happy to have you as the Well, I had candidate? a horrible first couple of years. You know, I'd go along to the general meetings once a month, and you would literally feel sick before you were going because you knew you were going to be shouted at. But I got some advice from uh, one of my supporting MPs. It was both Jack Straw and Frank Dobson, actually, were amazing. Frank Dobson came down every day to the by-election. And, you know, I had the choice. I could either have gone in there and started saying, agreeing with everything they wanted me to do and say and just have an easy life. Or I could go in and literally do what I wanted to do and take them on. And I, I decided to do that. And actually what happened then was people who had been driven out of the party or driven out of being activists came back in. And so we and we turned Vauxhall after a few years into a really good, positive, what I would call, you know, sensible party. But I was told things like I mustn't meet the police in those days. You, know, you you must not meet the police. You mustn't talk to the police. Police are fascists. You mustn't, all this kind of thing. My funniest thing is I wasn't was told I wasn't must not support this residence association who had lovely listed lighting and they wanted it renewed and the council said no, they had to go back to standard lighting. We didn't have as much conservation rules in those days. And I wrote and said, they'd said they would pay the difference. And I wrote and said, yes, I really thought this was a great idea. And I was so excited that we were going to get this. And I got a letter back from the council saying they didn't, it wasn't policy to support elitist lighting. So that was the state of Lambeth when I first got elected. But it's changed quite a lot. And how was Parliament? What surprised you about Parliament? I, I, though I was the 41st woman. There were 41 of us. Um in those days and 
I have to say that I was didn't feel in the slightest bit isolated as a woman. There were a lot of very strong women in there, you know, from both sides. One of them the, who's still there, Anne Clued. I mean, we we had we stood out because we were wearing bright clothes and we weren't. The speaker was very very good speaker. Weather all about ensuring that women, you know, were called to speak and so on. I genuinely didn't feel any isolation because I was a woman. What I did enjoy very much in those days, we had a lot of very long-standing Labour MPs who had come through working in the mines, working in industry, working in factories. Uh, There was a real working-class group of Labour men. And some of them were so supportive. You know, you would sit down and chat. And I think we're missing that today. Parliament has changed so much now. Very, very few people that can talk to new MPs about the history of, you know, what was going on all those years ago. And I find I find it, um, it took me ages before I got an office. All of the things that MPs take for granted now, we didn't have. You, you know, you didn't have a telephone for ages. You came in for the by-election with loads and loads of letters and people writing to you and taking up things you'd said you would do. And you had no facilities, no very little support. So it took a, it took a while to get used to that. But everybody was very, very supportive. Now they give people, you know, all sorts of, classes and what what's going on and all the different committees and things none of that happened in those days so you had to make it, it made you quite strong and tough and I think I was just talking to Anne Claude the other day about how things have changed and you know now I think maybe some of the new women MPs are just a little bit too precious about worrying about what you know what's happening and who's 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 upset them we just got on with it so did you you didn't find that you banded particularly with your fellow female colleagues when you entered well or? in those days yes i mean there was so few of us you know but and there was a lot more cross party work i think probably amongst the women even in those days it it just didn't it just wasn't i know it sounds really silly these days but because it, it's so there's so much about you know women but it, it just didn't occur to us that we were sort of we had to be you know, doing, being given any special treatment. We just were in there and if somebody had sort of touched me up, which they didn't, perhaps I would, I don't know, we would have told them to, you know, we'd have, you know, I was, I I think it really was just something that we didn't think about. We just got on with it, as I said. And you also had a female prime minister in Margaret Thatcher and and then obviously quite soon after John Major. But you previously said that Margaret Thatcher could be kind. That's not the usual line you hear from a Labour MP. (laughs) Well, I mean, she she was kind in the sense that I remember in my first few days literally bumping into her in one of the very few women's lavatories that we had. You know, you actually went in and uh, she was coming out and literally bumped into her and you know she stopped and said how are you getting on are you settling in and she'd I, I think probably because there were so few of us it was easier for her to you know be friendly and also you know she again it's is a bit strange for people but to think about it but in those days the cabinet and the government were more amenable to just being dropped in on you could literally go and see a minister and and ask for something and talk about it. I was pairing with William Waldegrave because pairing was very important in those days. And, you know, you if you wanted to see a minister about something in your constituency about transport or housing, you, you would do that. I think it's probably slightly more difficult these days. There's so many people in between the Secretary of State and, and, and the MP. But also we had Betty Boothroyd soon after that as a wonderful woman speaker. And I was very fond of her and I thought she 
is probably the best speaker that we've had for a long, long time. Not John Burko. Certainly not John Burko. And looking at some of the issues of which you could say that you've seen differently on than the bulk of your party. There's the Iraq war. You've spoken in favour of fox hunting. You've voted... Now, I've, I've always... My position on fox hunting, me. I don't want... I didn't agree with it being banned. I thought it was being banned for the wrong reasons. And was for me, it was something that was more about a sort of class thing and about a, an envy thing rather than actually about animal welfare. And then when it comes to votes... Um, You voted against Labour government policy on tuition fees, ID cards, uh, aspects Mm. of detention about trial, and that's Mm. before we even get to Brexit. Yes, and and, I mean, those are all nearly all things. I remember voting against the licensing laws. And of course, I was proved right. And so many of the things now, just looking back on issues where you voted against the mainstream of your party, you know, you were proved right a few years later. (laughs) Uh, So I, I, it's like, I'm going to be proved right on HS2. I voted against HS2 and I think we're going to find that it's not going to happen. So I think sometimes you have to, what's the point, you know, if you're doing things that you don't agree with and it's against your principles, there's just no point. What is it then that you would say makes you a Labour? You know, when I joined Labour, the values of Labour were what I had kind of been brought up with in terms of my family support and, and a very much a feeling that people must be able to have get on in life and be equal equality was very very important but I these days I think and also I I was a great supporter of trade unions I did understand and believe very strongly the role of trade unions and the way that they had actually shaped so much of our legislation in terms of of rights at work and maternity benefits and all of those you know people say it was all the EU but if without the trade union campaigning and we wouldn't have half the things that we have now but I think you know in the last few years Labour and particularly under Blair I mean Labour changed so much that I'm not quite sure whether what I originally joined Labour for became what Labour was and I think now I'm not sure what Labour really is standing for at the moment. I mean you've backed John McDonnell in a previous leadership contest. Did I? I can't remember I don't think I did. (laughs) I might have described that potentially. Um, There was. I supported Jeremy Corbyn when a lot of my colleagues thought that having been in for a year, it was time to get rid of him. And I thought that was ridiculous. I was one of the 42 who supported him. Would you say that your politics are closer to Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald's than Tony Blair's? Yes, I think apart from on international issues and obviously the policies on Ireland, I think, uh, you know, I do believe that there is a, an important role for the state to play in our society generally. And I think, you know, I think what Jeremy's done by really trying to make, I mean, there's no point in having a party that is just the same as the other main party. You know, you might as well merge if you're, if you're so similar. I think what Jeremy's done is, is get that difference again, which gives people a feeling that they do have a choice, which there was a time when it was beginning to feel that really politics was all about getting to the centre, who could win the centre ground. Now, you can't afford to lose the centre ground completely. But I, I've, I've got a lot of time for Jeremy, and I think particularly on, on questions to do with the EU, he has tried very, very hard to keep the party together while at the same time trying to remind himself he actually 
believe strongly in us leaving the EU. And on Brexit, I would say your position has been pretty consistent. In- for years, I voted against the Maastricht Treaty and lost my shadow front bench position. John Smith sacked me because I wouldn't abstain. You know, we'd opposed the Maastricht Bill for months and months. And then when it came to the final vote, the, we were supposed to abstain. And I, along with a lot of my colleagues, voted against. And John Smith rang me up and said, sorry, you have to resign your position. I said, well, are you going to sack me? And he said, yes. At this point in the process, what do you think the best possible outcome is? Well, I think we have gone so far now that we will leave eventually, one way or the other. I don't think you can, you know, old cliche, put the genie back in the bottle. I think that we have seen so much, so many changes now in the European Union that if we get out one way or the other, we will never go back in. It will be completely impossible for us to go back in. I would prefer not to have a second referendum. But if we have a second referendum, it has to not have remain on the table because that is then, you know, I can understand people saying, well, if we get a deal, then we might want to put it to a confirmatory vote. But of course, they don't really mean that. They mean they want the chance to stay to have a remain vote. So I wouldn't support any kind of referendum that has remain on the on the table. And I just feel that if we had a prime minister that was genuinely committed to us leaving, we wouldn't be where we are. And I'm afraid she does seem to have been surrounded by people, both in the civil service at higher echelons and in, around her advisors and so on, some of whom she's taken on. You just cannot imagine how she's appointed some of the, her advisors that she's not, she's just seen it all as how can we get through this? How can we get out, but not really get out? And rather than seeing it as a huge, huge opportunity for the country to be completely revitalised and to have that opportunity to show that, you know, as the fifth, sixth biggest economy, we can actually become an independent country that really can set the limits and set the targets and all sorts of things that we could do if we were independent. And I just feel for Labour, you know, the trade union movement seems to have almost abandoned its working class voters in the Midlands and in the North. And for Labour, any Labour government is going to be much, much easier for them to be able to do the bring in the kind of radical policies if we're not in the EU. And I, I just so sad, really, that my party has gone so far away from that. And looking at your party and their response to your views, we did have that no confidence vote in your local party, which came after against you after your decision to break the Labour whip and vote with the government to stop a customs union. And you suggested at the time you weren't particularly worried. But I wondered, does it bother you having people who are supposed to be supporting you and working together having such a strong rejection mm. of, of what you are arguing for? Well, 42 people voted for the no confidence. You know, I have a majority of 20,000 in the constituency. I love my constituency. I love my constituents. And I think I have a huge amount of support there, which is not represented in the activists within my local party. But having said that, you know, you, you obviously would prefer to be working hand in glove with your local party. But my local party is spending a lot of time now with a battle going on between the progress 
Tony Blair supporters that are very, very active in the constituency and have the leadership of the constituency and a growing momentum membership. And they are both, they're fighting each other for control of the party. I can just sit back and say, get on with it. I'm there to represent people, do things for helping people and to make sure that we're holding the government to account on on issues that really affect the day-to-day bread and butter issues of people in Vauxhall. Now, along with Brexit, we've spoken about lots of other issues you've gone out on a limb for and you do seem to have a very thick skin. And I was just wondering, is there ever a point in the day, maybe before you go to sleep, where your critics perhaps get to you or you think, maybe I'll sit this one out? No, I think... I think, certainly on Brexit, you know, my my mum was a terrifically anti-EU and when she literally was dying I mean she said to me I don't think they'll ever let us leave and I said to mum don't we live in a democracy you know so for and you know she would be if she was sitting here today she would be saying I told you so they're trying to stop it so I that to me now is my kind of driving force of on what I've always believed that we should be out and I will do what I can and I will to make sure we do leave on other issues I mean sometimes something is not as crucial that you feel you've got to kind of oppose the whip. These days, actually, in Parliament, there's very little that's happening that's not to do with the EU. You know, HS2 was another area where I did vote against. But I can't see any big ones coming up now that I'm I, that there's going to be big crunch issues on. I am looking forward to seeing what's in our European Union election manifesto. And I'm hoping in it that we are going to support revoking Article 50 I'm hoping that it won't have in it that we're going to support a second referendum. And I think a lot of Labour voters, if that was in it, would have to look at their position and how they were going to vote in the European elections. Now, just to end this podcast, just a few quick fire questions. Mm. You look look delighted, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) The worst advice you've ever been given? By someone who told me when I was first elected, just go along with everything that they tell you didn't really work it didn't work no and it was the first advice um, is Theresa May a feminist she's a woman you see I don't describe myself as a feminist so I wouldn't really want to uh, why is that describe her because I, I think the word now is has been abused and misused you know uh, and I think it sends a, a message out there that somehow you're almost anti-men and I I just believe so much in women's equality but I don't think you have to call yourself a feminist to believe in women's equality. Now, I hope I've got this right. You're 72. Yes. Would you stand in another election? We keep hearing there could be one around the corner. I shall stay until I feel like going. And at the moment, I'm I'm getting on, yes. But I just wondered it, if retirement was something that has any appeal to you. Or... Well, there's lots of things I'd like to do, definitely. You know, there is a life. I, I've always had a life outside this place I all my closest friends have nothing to do with politics or not active politics you know I go back to Northern Ireland as much as I can you know I've got a I've got a lot of things I could do if I wasn't in politics but I won't be happy giving up politics until we are a fully independent country again so every extension adds to your parliamentary career (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, if they want rid of me, they'd better get out of out of the EU as quickly as possible. Rumours that Chukar Amuna might stand as the change party in your constituency. Oh, what, uh, he's going to give up his neighbouring lovely Streatham that he loves. I doubt it. And finally, what would you like your legacy to be? I think just that she showed that despite uh, lots of opposition and, and people being you know, nasty and horrible that you can stick to your principles and that you can survive. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, why not subscribe? You can find all the episodes if you just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And that will also lead you to the iTunes store, where if you really like it, you could leave a review. And they include interviews with Andrea Ledsom, Emma Barnett and Sarah Baxter of The Sunday Times. And we also have an offer you may have heard of if you've ever listened to a Spectator podcast before. And that is 12 issues for £12, along with a £20 John Lewis voucher, which is also valid in the supermarket Waitrose. Uh, Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.